This Ends at Prom is a critical analysis podcast and is being produced in the midst of the SAG-AFTRA strike. The WGA may have made their tentative deal, but the members of SAG-AFTRA are still striking today. Without the labor of the actors currently on strike, the movie being reviewed here wouldn't exist. For more information, please visit the Freelance Solidarity Project at freelancesolidarity.org. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Jinkies prom party. Zoinks. There we go. We got those out of the way early. (laughs) (laughs) We are well underway in spooky season, and it is time for everyone's favorite family-friendly week, and we're finally tackling live-action Scooby-Doo. Those meddling kids. All those meddling kids. (laughs) Isn't it the most, like, old man withers, like, boomer-ass thing to call... People who are teens, possibly into their early 20s, kids. Yes. I mean, but then again, like, my dad's a boomer, and he still calls himself the kid all the time. That's so just because he's forever young. He is forever young. That is very, very true. Um, but, yeah, we, we every year we try to find a movie that is a little bit more... Uh, acceptable for our friends at home who might not be super into horror. We don't want to keep you completely excluded for a month. Um, the, the, the people who don't <laughs> want to watch The Exorcist? Yeah. The people who don't want to watch The Exorcist. Uh, I get it. I get it. Uh, but we are lucky that one of the most family-friendly spooky movies out there is also a movie that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for teen heartthrobs and you know teen icons. And, I mean, who, who if not the... Mystery Inc. are the ultimate in teen icons in pop culture. Mm-hmm. And luckily, we have quite possibly like one of the most remarkable minds in the worlds of Scooby-Doo joining us today. We have critic, entertainment writer, Valerie Ettenhofer, who recently completed the complete oral history of Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, a movie that is very, very important to both Harmony and I. But Valerie is joining us here today to talk about live-action Scooby-Doo. Hi, Valerie. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the good introduction. I I feel like I am more... There's definitely some Scooby scholars that have been doing it for decades, so I feel a little bit behind, but I do love... I do love Scooby, and I love... Uh, being considered a Scooby expert because I've spent so much time watching it for basically no reason. <laughs> just just for fun. <laughs> that's the, that's how we should all be watching things. Yeah, totally. We have really to monetize should... our hobbies. So sometimes we forget that. Yeah. <laughs> you should really have like Scooby Scholar on all of your business cards and resumes. 
That's what I think. I, I appreciate it. I definitely have the t-shirts for it. I'm wearing a Hex Girl shirt right now. So I have a, Sco- <laughs> a Scooby shirt for every day of the week if needed. <laughs> Incredible. Um, so while we're talking about live action Scooby-Doo, just kind of around the table, how old were we when this movie came out? I was 12. Uh, if you're 12, I would have been 11, depending on when in the year it came out. So, yeah, that's about right. Okay. And Valerie, how about you? Yeah, I was close to turning eight, so I was younger, but my brother and my neighbor and all of their friends were 12. So I, I definitely like watched it a lot with, with the same age bracket as y'all. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. So we were definitely like very much the target audience for the movie that we got. We'll talk about, you know, the history of this movie and the the different uh, versions of it that existed at some point. But the movie we got, this was definitely for our age group. So we were very much the ones who were going to appreciate this. Totally. But I, I'm very curious about all of our relationships just with Scooby in general. So Harmony, what's your, what's your Scooby history? I mean, Scooby's, Scooby's my shit. <laughs> I love I love Scooby. Um, I was smitten by the show because Hanna Barbera got a huge resurgence because of the birth of Cartoon Network in the '90s. Um, Scooby Doo was like the breakout star of all of those in a way that I don't think they were prepared for. I was so Scooby pilled to the point where I was like had so much merch, so much stuff. I have a giant vampire Scooby Doo behind me that's like two feet tall that it sits at the foot of our bed. So I bought that like two or three years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, like Zombie Island was really what like took it to the next level. And all of the subsequent movies of varying quality I did love. And then we, we got we got this Scooby-Doo. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And Valerie, Short how version. about you? Yeah, I, um, I definitely watched Scooby as early as I can remember. I specifically watched it at my grandma's house because I had, or grandma and grandpa's house. I only had like five channels at my house so I didn't get Scooby um unless it was like I think maybe it showed up on like UPN sometimes for a second but um but you know I would go to my grandma's house and she just always had the TV on so um it was one of those places where you could just be like I'm coloring and I'm watching TV I'm putting up the Christmas tree and I'm watching TV you know and just do that for 12 hours straight um (laughs) and that perfectly coincided with when Boomerang um started in 2000 so you know it was boomerang and cartoon network i had on constantly um and i loved a lot of different scoobies too i think because of that because of boomerang coming around it was maybe the first time people could watch a ton of different versions of it at once so it was like i could watch what's new scooby-doo um a pup named scooby-doo like the movies like ghoul school and then yeah when zombie island and and that um like four movie stretch came out um they were kind of just all on all the time. So that was great for me. I loved it. So I, I definitely was very hyped for this movie when it came out. Amazing. I love that so much. And also I love that you're like, oh, yeah, we only had like four channels. I'm like, I think that we would have had four channels. And I only got to watch all of like the 90s Cartoon Network stuff because my dad stole cable for like years. <laughs> yeah. When I got older and realized people could steal cable, I was like, why did we never attempt that? Like, my family was not tech savvy enough to know how. Apparently not. I'm surprised my dad could figure it out. All, all they realized is, like, the people that live next door, like, they moved out and no one ever took, like, the cable hookup. So then he just went over to, like, a ladder and stole it. Oh, I love that. Well, we, we lived, I mean, to me, it's just kind of in the country, but other people say it's, like, quite rural. So I remember... Like when we were gonna get cable and get Wi-Fi, 
Um, the guy came out to do both and, or, you know, separately, I guess, over separate occasions. Um, but anytime they came out to do something with the power pole, they'd be like, this is the oldest power pole in the country. And like, whatever the, like, (laughs) whatever is happening here is like 20 years older than everyone else. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) So like, we couldn't even get Wi-Fi till I was in like the 10th grade, (laughs) but that was great because I could go to my grandma's every weekend. So (laughs) amazing. BJ, what about you? So, all right, I'm going to put my mom on blast a little bit here because it's one of my favorite, like, mom stories. But (laughs) when my mom was a kid, uh, they also only had, like, five channels, but she grew up during, like, the heyday of Scooby-Doo. And so the kids all had to, like, alternate when they would get control of the remote. And Scooby-Doo was on at the same time as the banana splits. And my (laughs) mom's little brother, who, like, you know, is not that little he's like a grown-ass man now uh but my mom's brother was really into the banana splits and my mom was really hardcore into scooby-doo so my earliest scooby memory is her telling me about the time she like molly wumped the shit out of her brother to get the remote because a really good episode of scooby-doo was coming on and she did not care that it was his turn she was not gonna miss scooby so like my mom is hardcore into scooby and she has pushed that onto me because like Harmony was saying when Cartoon Network came around and when you know Boomerang and they were starting to put these Hanna-Barbera cartoons back into kind of kids eyes my mom was like oh Scooby because she wants to watch it too so I watched a ton of Scooby-Doo with my mom and then I got really into a pup named Scooby-Doo because I was a kid and they were also kids so you know we're one and the same and Velma also has always meant a lot to me because she's queer coded because even though she's not fat like she's always been kind of coded as like the the chubbier one so that really big sweaters Right, she's got big sweaters, so it's it's implied that she's like not as thin as Daphne. So like that always, you know, resonated with me. She's also very, very bookish and very smart, and I loved that about her. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, this is like a like a sexy thing too. Cool, this is great. Um, and so yeah, Scoob Scoob's a big part of my life. Uh, I love Scooby Doo. And I've never not loved Scooby Doo. I love being an adult who just casually rewatches Scooby Doo uh, whenever I can. All of the different versions of it. I like having a favorite. I like to be able to have an informed opinion on having a favorite. I think uh, is nice. But yeah, I'm also a huge lover of this live action movie because it came out exactly when I needed it to, and uh, the memes are great. So <laughs> happy to talk about it today. <laughs> Um, so Valerie, if you had to explain to somebody what this live action Scooby-Doo is like quick elevator pitch, why should people watch the live action Scooby-Doo movie? Oh, sure. So it, um, it basically steals the beginning of Zombie Island. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's, I thought at the time I thought it was very fun because it's, uh, they're slightly older Mystery Inc. So it's, um, and I guess if you're like completely new to Scooby-Doo, I don't know if, if anyone is, but you know, Fred, Daphne, Velma, Shaggy, Scooby, they solve mysteries. Um, but this kind of plays with it in a meta sense where it's like they uh, start the movie having solved a ton of mysteries and they're really sick of the archetypes that they're trapped in um, and, and the roles they play in the team. So they split up and then they get kind of coaxed back together um, by going to this really cool island theme park that I've always wanted to go to called uh, Spooky Island um, and are supposed to solve a mystery there. But it's, again, 
maybe in stealing a little bit from the zombie island stretch, it ends up being uh, some real monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also just feels like, uh, to me, I loved things where it was a movie for kids, but not just about kids. Um, I always loved movies that are um, just, you know, for, about people slightly older than me having slightly more fun and independent experiences than I can. Um, <laughs> and I think this is this is a really harmless um, you know, it's not like offensive or anything um, for kids, but it's um, a great version of that where you can just have so much fun and 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 get wrapped up in the humor and also in the escapism of being like, wow, wouldn't it be so cool if I could just go to a spooky island and solve a mystery? <laughs> which oh, which yeah. people bring up all the time, specifically in like film and horror spaces where they're like, oh, why isn't there a real like spooky island? I would visit a spooky island. It looks so much fun. And I love the idea of that because it's like, but would you want to hang out with a bunch of like 20 year olds on spring break exclusively? <laughs> That's true. I found I found out that they made the roller coaster for real in the in the place where they filmed in Australia. And I'm sure it's gone now. But I'm like, I would like to go there. Oh, I'm sure it is dilapidated as heck. <laughs> Yeah, I love what you said about how they're like a little bit older, but it's still definitely for a younger audience because then it also becomes a little bit aspirational in a way where you do kind of have this glossy eyed look at what things could be like for you in the future. And it's not like a really jaded look at adulthood or young adulthood quite yet, uh, which I think, you know, we... The world's going to do that enough for us. We don't need mm-hmm. <laughs> movies for children being like, by the way, when you turn 20, you're going to have an existential crisis and everything's going to suck. Like, you don't need that. <laughs> it's nice to be eight years old and being like, oh, spooky island, skull disco ball, mystery solving. What a great day. Reuniting with my friends. Like, that's nice. <laughs> totally. And I would argue, too, that it, it does. Like, it's not a coming of age movie in a lot of ways, but it definitely does contain like the the feeling of that specifically with Matthew Lillard's performance because he's so good all Mm -hmm. his line deliveries like like anything he says when he's talking about um essentially just the friends breaking up or wanting to stick together or um like they really tie the idea of heroism in this movie with um friendship and it's just so sweet like it makes me it if you were to be at a phase where you were worried about losing friends I feel like it would be a comforting watch as well Totally. Especially because, like, I, I don't want to just, like, get this out there, like, before first thing in the episode, but, like, Matthew Lillard's the best in this movie, and that's why he continued to do Shaggy in particular, but also because he makes me believe there's actually a dog there. Because so yeah, much of the yeah. time when you watch, like, this CG character in the real world movie, you can watch it and go... You are acting to nothing, and it's so obvious that there is nothing there. There's maybe a ten- tennis ball on a string, just so you have a context of like there being something there. Matthew Lillard convinces me Scooby-Doo is real, despite the CG being very dated. He is so compelling. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah, he's amazing. And so this I'm going to defer to you, Valerie, because, again, you are our Scooby scholar here. So where does this movie come out in terms of context of, like, where, because Scooby's been around forever, especially for us, it feels like he's kind of omnipresent. Where does this fall in like the timeline of Scooby? Like, what's going on Scooby wise? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because I think this is so interesting. And especially in delving into my Zombie Island project, I learned so much more about the timeline. So, um, Hanna Barbera was 
uh, bought, I don't know if bought's the right word for it, but it ended up a part of Warner Brothers in the early 90s, started kind of doing more stuff with Warner Brothers in the later 90s. Um, they did a four-movie stretch. Uh, they hadn't done a Scooby movie in any form since early 90s, I believe. Uh, it was the, the like, Arabian Nights one. I forget what year that was, maybe 91 or, or 3. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, um, so then there was a four-movie period of Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, um, which is Ghost, Alien Invaders, and Cyber Chase, which is by a team of people who, from what I understand, you know, it was up and down throughout the series, but they definitely had a lot of creative freedom that doesn't necessarily seem like it's the norm anymore in movies like this. Um, And so they tried a lot of really innovative things. So that definitely made Scooby super popular um, going into the early 2000s because Zombie Island was... You know, this is a bit apocryphal, but a lot of people have said that it was the most successful Scooby movie in terms of um, home video sales and all that stuff. So it was already really popular. And then that stretch ended. Um, Cyber Trace was in 2001. And then those people were either left or asked to leave, depending on who you talk to. But um, kind of just, they kind of just, it sounds to me like WB wanted to just start pumping more stuff out, like kind of convey, conveyor belt style a little more and not, you know, uh, luxuriating in the process of, of uh, making these wonderful movies. But so that kind of start that was like an inflection point in the franchise, you know, where it, it uh, made it really popular. And it also helped that Boomerang started in 2000, like we said, and that got a lot of Scooby in front of people's eyes. The year after this, um, What's New Scooby-Doo started, or actually, I think it was only three months after this, What's mm-hmm. New Scooby-Doo started. So that was another thing too. So it's interesting to me because I've been trying to figure out why this movie was like critically reviled. And I honestly think it's because the adults probably were not aware of all of these cool things that were already happening in the world of Scooby-Doo um, at the time. Whereas kids, we were like, oh, wow, we're being exposed to like six different versions of Scooby-Doo. Um, we're getting Boomerang. We're getting these great direct-to-video movies. So we are very jazzed for something new, something live action like this. So it honestly was the best time, I think, for this movie to come out for the fans, um, even if critics were just like kind of ignoring all of the animation and just thought it was corny because they only had the 69 version for reference. Oh, totally. Like, this is not the first of these kinds of movies. Like, Rocky and Bullwinkle also comes out around this time, and I love the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie, but it's a revival of a long, like a 60s animation, a 60s cartoon that had not really resurged at any point. And I think people who are watching movies are not aware of like the direct-to-video Scooby-isms. And if you're not keeping up with like the whole billing point of Zombie Island was like, this time the monsters are real, despite the Mm -hmm. fact that like Ghoul School and Reluctant Werewolf had had real monsters before, but they were a little more, um, they had humanity to them. They were silly. They were fun. These were like real monsters who were scary. I think that this sort of betrays your your general understanding of what Scooby-Doo is if you're not following it. Because it's like, yeah, there's a guy in the mask at the beginning, but Fef, get rid of that Scooby-Doo. We're sick of that Scooby-Doo. We're going to break up. Now we're going to fight these gross, lanky bunny monsters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was definitely a point of, it was a, it was riding on a high point of creativity mm-hmm. um, for the franchise, for sure. So... I don't know. I think it was a great year for this movie to come out, and and that's probably why it made box office bank, but it's also 
it makes sense to me that adults in the room who weren't paying attention were just kind of like, what is, why is this now? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. What's also interesting too is that we're also in kind of the decade where Hanna-Barbera is having a sort of self-aware satirical resurgence because of Adult Swim and Space Goes Coast to Coast, Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law. Like they were taking these, you know, semi-forgotten Hanna-Barbera cartoons and subverting them in ways for older audiences. Um, And I think that there's like a little disconnect with Scooby because Scooby has sort of always been like, I think in some people's minds, like a sacred property, even though Scooby has been like Scooby's evolved so many times. I am going to shout out another piece that you wrote. I'm sorry if this makes you feel like uh, about it. But you also wrote this piece about like when the Velma series came out about how one of the best things about Scooby-Doo is that it has always been changing and always been evolving. And I think people forget that because they get so streamlined in like the original like Scooby-Doo, where are you? And they don't recognize that like Scooby has gone through so many different forms and has taken so many different approaches to comedy. Like the characters to some extent always kind of are the same, but you know, they have evolved. Like Fred has become so much more of a himbo. Uh, You know, Mm. even just looking at the be cool Scooby-Doo, the way that Daphne is changing her little puppets, God bless. She's incredible. Um, They have been evolving and it's interesting to see how many people were like fighting against that in the 2000s with this live action movie, even though it had already happened like multiple times until this point. Totally. Yeah. Like when I go back, like when I went back and watched some of the older shows I hadn't seen, if you watch Scooby-Doo and 13 Ghosts, it's just like Shaggy, Scooby, Daphne, I believe, Mm -hmm. and Vincent Price and a small Latino boy um, who is like very... Uh, feels racist in the depiction. Um, Is his name then, Flim Flam? Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> and then like um some some like dopey ghosts. So like you're like okay we're we're complaining now because uh, Velma's a woman of color. But do you remember that time when like half the people were gone and replaced with like very random characters? So oh, yeah, right. it's been it's been doing weird stuff forever, and it's interesting to me. What I was most surprised by is when I interviewed a lot of people involved in this franchise, and not even just the people I spoke with, but the people they talked about who they worked with, um, it seems like there's just a ton of people even making these movies who are such purists about it. Um, and so it's very surprising to me. There's definitely two two schools of thought about it, um, but I'm, I'm very surprised how many people are like, no, it should all be exactly the same. When really, if you rewatch um, the very first Scooby-Doo series... It's very hard to watch more than two episodes in a row because they're all pretty similar, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Hanna Barbera in general made uh, they they did not have a lot of uh, creative ambitions with the things they made. They used a lot of very cheap animation, a lot of formulas. You even see that with just Scooby Doo knockoffs of like the Funky Phantom or Jabberjaw, you know. Mm-hmm. But like as a kid, like. The follow-up to Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, which only lasted for maybe like two seasons, three tops, it did not have a super long run in its original series, was the new Scooby-Doo movies. And Mm -hmm. that's where me as a child, I'm going, huh, Sandy Duncan, I don't know who that is, but she's solving mysteries with Scooby-Doo. Who are the Harlem Globetrotters? They seem fun. Yeah. Like, it immediately started doing goofy stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I'm always, I'm always going to be more interested in a period of 
Scooby doing something weird, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's why, like, Sco- the movie Scoob, I didn't love as much as I, wa- I wanted to because it felt like it was just like, what if we bring in some Hanna-Barbera characters and make it kind of a superhero movie? And I'm like, that's fine, but I just think there's so, there's like a huge canon of monsters you can be dealing with. There's so many funky things you can be doing. Um, but yeah, there's, I don't know. I think this is, this is maybe the high point, not not the live action movie per se, but you know, like the five years around there with what's mm-hmm. new Scooby Doo with the other with the other movies. It seems like it's the high point in creativity before things got a little more cookie cutter. Oh yeah, when they started doing movie entries direct to video on a yearly basis, and it was totally. more of just an expectation and like a quota than you know actually trying to make something great. But the, a little additional context that I think is fun is that. The specific cast of Scooby-Doo, you know, Scooby himself withstanding, are all, like, teen stars. And, like, not just teen stars, but, like, teen superstars of the 90s and very early 2000s. I was curious when if y'all had pre-existing um, ideas of, of these people, if you had seen them and loved them and other things before you watched this when you were 12 or 11. I did, but that's because I was not limited in what I was allowed to watch. So I knew who all of these characters, like these people were in other movies. I was like, that's the guy from She's All That. That's the girl from I Know What You Did Last Summer. That's, that's the guy from Serial Mom. That's the guy from Serial <laughs> Mom. Because like, cause that's what's funny is I knew him from Serial Mom before I knew him from Scream because I was like very afraid of Ghostface. Um, and then Linda Cardellini, I recognized her, but I didn't know what I recognized her from. And then it wasn't until like later on, it was like, oh, it's from when I caught episodes of Freaks and Geeks. Like that's who this person mm-hmm. is. So I did have an idea. The one like. Matthew Lillard was the one I was the most excited about because I loved him in Serial Mom. Um, So seeing him play Shaggy, I was like, that's perfect casting. Not knowing any other actor who could have possibly also done it. But good news. I was right at 12 and I'm right today. It was perfect casting. (laughs) Totally. For, For me, I like I didn't watch a lot of live action stuff. I was such a cartoon kid. Like I was fully in on cartoons, like almost exclusively. And my live action stuff had to function like a cartoon. So it had to be like the Amanda show or Keenan and Kel or something like that. And so I did not realize that all the people in this movie were big deals. <laughs> did you, does that mean you saw Linda Cardellini and Good Burger? I mean, probably at some point, yes, but I couldn't have picked her out of a crowd. But I know she is in Good Burger. Totally, yeah. I hadn't seen, I, I went through last night to check in. I, you know, it, the, amount of big titles these people had been in at the time was wild. So, like, I know what you did last summer. She saw that. Buffy, Scream, Scream 2, Cruel Intentions, 13 Ghosts, um, Legally Blonde, Freaks and Geeks. Like, there's just... And they were very much all in the zeitgeist at the time. Mm-hmm. But I didn't... I didn't know either any of them either. I um, always think that I knew Matthew Lillard from Without a Paddle, but I looked and that's from 2004. So I don't know if I just like remember seeing commercials for it when I already was really loving Scooby-Doo 2002 or what. But. It could have been when Scooby made it to like Cartoon Network and TV where they were playing it on television. Yeah. So then it's like, it's kind of like the very, very slow process of like, cool, it's going to be in theaters. And then nine months later, it's going to come to video. And then maybe a year after that, it'll start airing on TV. Mm-hmm. I think so. But I think that that casting is, it was one of the smartest things that they did 
because you are grabbing all of these, you know, stars while they're they are at their hotness, or at least what they view as going to be their hotness. They've all had, you know, very long, fantastic, successful careers, and I'm very honored to like be such big fans of all of them and they're mm-hmm. all you know wonderful people from what we can tell I never want to stand for celebrities because you never know um yeah. <laughs> but that I think was really smart because Scooby-Doo is such a you know quote-unquote like kids property that by casting them you are suddenly opening up your demo because now it's not just kids who want to see it but now it's the parents of these kids who they grew up seeing Scooby, so they're gonna wanna see it. So what do you do with that like kind of dead zone in between those like teenagers and young adults? Oh, you cast people who are really popular with that demo in these roles and now you've turned this into a four quadrant movie, which Mm -hmm. I think is really, really smart. And like it paid off well. It also helps because you know, you think about Fred and Daphne being Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar, who are a real life couple. And like that chemistry reads to me on screen. Like mm-hmm. I know that they are in love with each other. And when they're fighting, like it feels like it's got it's coming from a real place or when they're imitating each other because, you know, their souls are in different bodies. Like it reads so well. And it's like, you, yeah, that's that's real chemistry that I'm watching. I mean, they are talented actors, too, but it's. It's palpable. (laughs) Totally. I like that this movie is meta not just about each character, but also about the actors themselves. Because it's like, Sarah Michelle Gellar also gets to have her Buffy moment, right? Where she's just, Mm -hmm. like, kicking the shit out of that guy. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know. I I think that we're being very effusive about this movie, and there's a ton of people that aren't. But I think across the board, no matter who you talk to, everyone agrees that the cast is, is... fantastic in this movie um it's it's just it's like undeniable I can't and I I have never even thought about like dream casting anyone else in the roles at that time because they all just feel right oh for sure this this is very much like the Adams family of the 2000s where Adams family one does not have a great plot but the cast is so unbelievably good and committed and fun and clearly having fun with each other that it doesn't matter that the twist that is like Uncle Fester was actually not Uncle Fester, but he is Uncle Fester who lost his memory. Like yeah. that is not good writing, but it actually kind of works for the Adams family. But as like a, a, a standalone thing that's introducing a lot of young people in the 90s to the Adams family, it's it's a little bonk. But like this is like that where it's like, yeah, the plot is fine. The CG was good at the time, but the cast sells you on it. And I think that's why everyone looks so fondly on this movie because they're all so committed and so perfect. Mm-hmm. I was curious. Um, do y'all remember when you watched it, were there parts that you loved or hated? And then now rewatching, did that change at all? I always, I feel like with movies like this, I always go through a phase where I'm like, oh, I don't want to show my friends this movie or whatever because I loved it when I was younger, so it must suck. You know what I mean? Um, And this has held up surprisingly well where when I rewatch or when I show it to someone, there's a couple parts where I'm like, eh. But typically, I feel like I can still bring new people into the joy of it. Oh, yeah. I don't need, like, an extended burping and farting scene, though it does give us the memes of Matthew Lillard being challenged. So in hindsight, I will take that, but I don't need that as a scene because it's not really a thing. Like that was never a thing in any of the Scooby things where it's like, what if Scooby-Doo farted a bunch? Yeah, totally. I think they went, 
Some of the pratfall stuff that I think people probably thought was corny at the time feels very much like trying to make a cartoon real, which I love. And mm-hmm. then some of it is just over the... Like, there's definitely a couple times where I just, like, zone out because I'm like, okay, we don't need this much action happening or or this much farting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could I could do without Sugar Ray. Um, I understand why they're there, um, but I, I, don't, I don't need you. But it also does play into, like the history of Scooby-Doo having random as hell, like celebrity appearances. So in that regard, like I'm not super against it. I like, like you said, I go through phases cause I've even like gone through phases with the burping and farting stuff where when I was a kid, I even didn't like it because I was in that like age period where everything is like, that's gross. That's like so immature. You should grow mm-hmm. up. Farting is, is not funny. And then I've like kind of come around to it as an adult where I watch it and I'm like, well, at least they committed really hard to that scene it's not an instance of just like like we talk about on the show all the time but like it's not just like young josh peck running away and they added fart sounds in post like they wrote a scene and committed to a farting and burping scene and for that you know what you can have it go for it (laughs) yeah i was i was trying to think of a of a tweet about this yesterday because it's like when I was a kid I was like oh the fart part's kind of funny and then you know young adult I was like this is dumb and like it's it's the worst part of the movie and then yesterday I honestly laughed at it like more than anything in the movie because I remembered I just flashed back to how my brother and my neighbor thought it was so funny that when Shaggy stands up because he got caught he like makes like a unique fart sound oh yeah it gets really high pitched (laughs) yeah he's like trying to stop essentially um and there's no need for any of that like none of it has to do with anything but just thinking about that like yeah I don't know there's there's definitely a lot of like two second details in this movie that I've I don't know if it's because I watched it so many times or if they really are genius but like there's a couple little tiny moments that just really get me (laughs) Oh, definitely. We we wrote down a couple of them, and we will go into that. But for now, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Hello there, prom party. Hopefully you're enjoying your spooky season now that it is properly underway. We've got some fun stuff coming up over on the Patreon this month. Our Sadie Hawkins dances, we're just covering some some boys, getting getting some stuff done. <laughs> we're doing uh, the classic teen boy movie of The Lost Boys and the tragically underseen Vampires vs. the Bronx. It's about gentrification. They throw a dobo in a vampire's face. It's awesome. For our Musical Milestones episode, we are covering a, a bit of a broad topic rooted around a single subject with Nightmare Before Christmas, Hot Topic Culture, Eyeliner boys and spooky girls. So we're just continuing BJ's trip down memory lane as a former emo scene kid. (laughs) We've also crossed the halfway point of Mike's so-called life. We actually just did a Halloween episode last month. So I'm curious to see where we're going to end up going this month. Because this show goes a lot of weird places I wasn't prepared for. In addition to all of those episodes, you can look forward to our monthly playlist it is a bit spooky this month bj's wellness newsletter and access to the always important for our knowledge suggestion box in addition to just you know the vast back catalog that we have available over there if at this time you're not able to support the podcast we totally understand as always just feel free to share us with any friends who you think enjoy what we do or give us a five-star rating wherever it is you listen to your podcasts because doing so is truly the best way that you can 
help our podcast grow and continue to do its thing for ever, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Thank you so much. And now back to the movie. So speaking of the writing, this movie is written by, at the time, a fairly unknown James Gunn. And I love people who retrospectively look at it going, man, what if we got the movie that James Gunn wanted? What if this actually was like a PG-13, maybe even a rated R Scooby-Doo, where it's like, they're going to have weed jokes, and Velma's going to be a lesbian, and we're going to have all these elements, and it would have been so cool. But I want to remind them that this is 2002, and James Gunn got in trouble for edgelord jokes he was making a decade later. There's no way those jokes would have been good. That's yeah. a that's a really good point. Like I I do wish still we would have gotten lesbian Velma, but I do appreciate that the guy who's interested in her, that guy absolutely is into girls like Velma with his little the Zeppelin three quarter sleeve shirt. I'm like, oh yeah, that guy's into Velma. His baseball sure. tee and his questionable <laughs> haircut and, and facial hair facial that hair. makes him look like Hal Sparks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was so surprised when I looked it up and that character doesn't even have a name. And I was like, in my head, no? I was like, right, I was like writing fanfic about these people like I definitely <laughs> imagined him having a big role so yeah um I agree I also read something it was definitely in the like early 2000s questionable blogger phase but um I read something that mentioned like humor that they were gonna try to put in um and it was a piece from back when production was happening and it mentioned like weed jokes but it also mentioned uh Velma having a crush on Daphne which I thought was interesting so I don't know if that was ever going to be in there or not but that was referenced in something in like 2001 so I was like huh um I guess there is that part where she's like Daphne's really pretty and Fred's also really pretty mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah I like earlier we were talking about like the two second thing so there are a couple things in here that I wanted to kind of shout out that we realized we're like oh okay uh one the random Pam Anderson cameo um, I don't know who that's for, but it's for me, apparently. Um, yeah. Because it's like, why is Pam Anderson in this kid movie in 2002? Glad you're here, but that's a choice. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, Pamela yeah. Anderson, post-sex tape, post-retiring like <laughs> from Baywatch, Pam Anderson is in this movie. Because we as a society know Pamela Anderson is, like, high-value hot, and her being here talking to Fred means he's hot shit. Yeah, like, it didn't really feel like it meant anything except, like, Fred could... Fred could get anyone he wants, but like, mm -hmm. I like it because I think it's cute because that was my first context for Pamela Anderson. So oh, it's really I love sweet. that. Like it's very, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very sweet idea to be like, you know, the world has this opinion of her, but like, I just see her as this like random hot lady who like showed up and did an interview. I didn't yeah. even understand. Like I finally caught the line this time where she said it was like, she was trying to make an action figure and that's why she was there. Um, I didn't even ever catch that the like hundred times I watched it before. So she was really just like a contextless person for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. Um, another one, and this is a joke that like only makes sense now. Like there was no way in hell that this joke was intentional at the time. But Harmony and I kind of lost our minds during the airport sequence where you get the reveal of how Scooby's going to be on the airplane, which is by dressing like a woman. And the song they play is Brick House. And so it's like, okay, the implication is obviously that Scooby standing on hind legs on hind legs and is just big. Like Scooby's a brick shit house in a dress. Mm-hmm. 
But brick is also the word that you use to say like a very clocky trans woman. <laughs> so we were like, are they saying Scooby's a brick? Because if so, cool. <laughs> like, also love kind this. of rude. But also yeah. kind of rude. Scooby's very elegant in this church lady basement dress. I don't, I don't know about that. Like Scooby didn't even Scooby didn't wear makeup, didn't wear a wig. How are you supposed to know he's actually a woman? <laughs> where it's like one of those things of cartoons of the era where it's like, oh, well, how do you know that Miss Pac-Man's a woman? She has a bow. <laughs> she has eyelashes. Yeah. <laughs> so going, silly. Going back to Harmony's point about uh how it's fine that we didn't get an R-rated cut. I totally agree because I was really impressed re-watching this that there was not very much um, like early 2000s humor that leaked through. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel like I remember watching it with my brother and his friends and the part they would laugh at most was when it would be like, haha, there was like a girl and she had a deeper voice. So like, I'm glad that they weren't like tempted to go more into that. That's like one of the only things that I was like not a fan of rewatching. And also Fred speaking like the weirdest like parody of AAVE. Um, mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> yo, yo, you, yo. Yeah. Yeah. But other than that, I was like so, I was very like surprised and impressed that it didn't like, because it is, it does add in a couple little like, kind of edgy jokes you know it has like mary jane that's my favorite name i didn't realize uh scrappy says you don't have the scrote to do it which is like (laughs) such a wild line but like it's nice it's nice the version we got i think i i'm very glad that it didn't um try to tilt a little bit more toward adult because like you said it would have been uh questionable adult humor probably oh yeah this is james gunn like fresh out of working with trauma yeah. 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 And I think that the the jokes that we do get, I they do ride that line because Scrappy also I think he tries to call them like meddling sons of bitches and they close the door on him before he can get the swear out because I told with the moment happened during our rewatch and I told Harmony, I distinctly remember watching that with a group of people and all of us go <gasps> at the same time because we know what word he's gonna say but he doesn't actually say it but that's all you need like we don't actually have to hear him swear because our imagination fills that blank in for us um but you know the the weed reveals are some of the best ones for me like when you get to the mystery machine van and it looks like they're hot boxing but really they yeah. have like a mini grill in the back Eating like a chocolate eggplant sandwich yeah like that's super funny and like very very clever and then you know (laughs) shaggy talks about all the places that they're not gonna go and he's like nothing with the names like spooky scary creepy or hydroclonic (laughs) i was like okay that's good that's really funny um that's very clever that's a joke not for 12 year olds that's a joke for the parents at home um it rides the line like shrek um i think Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also think that Lillard, again, like, he really sells his character's innocence, and I think that makes them able to do things. Like, uh, the part where he says, you don't have to know what voulez-vous coucher avec moi means to love that song, Mm -hmm. is, like, so cute. He's, like, so innocent, and, like, just, I don't know, like, he really delivers the lines in a way where you're, like, as a kid, you don't really think to, like... Like, I never thought to Google hydrocolonic. You know what I mean? Like, it's like... Right. You, you're just very happy with what you got. You really get the vibe. You get the tone. Um, but then adults have something to laugh about, too. That's one part of the mystery solved. The creatures must need our bodies to survive in sunlight. Like a human suit. SPF 1 million. 
But what are they doing here in the first place? Daphne, you okay? Yeah. But I'm not Daphne. Fred? I couldn't get to my body. I didn't know where else to go. I panicked. It's not easy to steer when you're pure spirit. Hey. I can look at myself naked. Oh, brother. There is one thing, though, that I do want to acknowledge just because we are responsible critics here on this show. Um, Scooby-Doo live action, as well as just kind of like a lot of Scooby-Doo in general, honestly, just American culture in general, is really weird and bad about the way that it depicts like nondescript, like tropical, tiki, indigenous culture. Like, I don't know how to describe it because it's not real. Like, it's not actually based on anything real. Like, they're doing an idea of voodoo, but it's not actual voodoo. It's like Hollywood voodoo. So, like, that's always, like, a weird thing to look at, but that's just, like, it is what it is. Like, you can't go back in time and, like, completely uproot an entire plot point uh, to it. So this is just, like, our responsible acknowledgement of, like, yeah, that shit's irresponsible. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a g- generic general version of this concept that's probably rooted mostly in, like, pulp magazines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's Scooby-Doo having to deal with, like, uh, like a witch doctor in, like, the original series, like one of the first episodes, is very much a thing you have to go, like, man, the chipmunk sure did saying, like, ting-tang, walla-walla-bing-bang as just, like, <laughs> right. a language, some ricky-ticky-tambo kind of thing, huh? Right. Yeah, it's, it's very much like when the X-Files episode is, like, this thing happened in Chinatown in San Francisco, and you're like, oh, God, this is going to be a horrible episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, God, man, Big Trouble in Little China is a really good movie. That's also, like, really racist, right? Yeah, totally. It's, yeah. it's definitely, and I think this movie is, uh, more maybe more conscientious in a lot of ways of being nondescript with it um, mm-hmm. than pa- past Scooby, but it is still. I was wondering how someone who actually, um, you know, had that knowledge of voodoo would feel about Voodoo Guy because it was it did feel like a joke of uh, you you expected him to be traditional with it, and then he was really just like a fast talking very. Fu- I think he's very funny. That guy's name is Miguel Nunez. I mm-hmm. looked up, I looked him up because I think he's like the one of the funniest parts of the movie. But yeah, I I totally agree. I think that that is weirdly persistent and I'm sure we could look at things even like uh in in the past decade or two probably where there's also still been some some strange cultural portrayals in Scooby-Doo. Oh yeah. Like also like Miguel, I'm really excited whenever he pops up in anything. Like mm-hmm. I'm like, oh shit, is that is that Comedy Central's Juana Man? See, and yeah, then for me, Miguel Nunez is forever. Uh, he he's in uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. He's the one who dies on the porta potty after having those damn enchiladas. Um, and he's uh-huh. also the only one with any goddamn sense in Return of the Living Dead, which are so, clearly like yeah. classier choices than Juana Man. That was just the first thing I saw him in, and it was like, it's a man in a dress. I will commit this to an important memory for the rest of my life. Um, but yeah, no. He exists mostly in this movie just to be a red herring because red herring. Sorry, yes, I had exactly. Because <laughs> he has like two scenes and then is like in the background during like the final shot and that's it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> but yeah, he is real funny. Like he's funny in everything that he does though. He's just he's one of those like underrated character actors who doesn't get enough credit for being as brilliant as he is. So mm-hmm. I like that Scooby Doo understands how brilliant Miguel Nunez is. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking, his scenes always remind me of Daphne's arc because I love that she does the little uh, reverse psychology thing with him. Um, And I was, I guess, interested in how y'all felt about the characterization of all the characters um, in this because some of them are, especially, especially knowing as much about Scooby as y'all do, because I feel like it's, it's so fun and interesting what they're doing and, and not all new, but a lot of it was kind of breaking ground for the characters. I would, I would agree with that. Uh, I think that this is the first time you start to see a lot of elements of things. I think this is when you start to get like himbo version of Fred because Mm -hmm. it's becoming a little more self-aware. Like somewhere in the ethos of Greta Gerwig or Ryan Gosling or something, either consciously or subconsciously, Ken is based on this Fred. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree There's no universe in my mind where that is not true. So that's a thing. Um, I think this is the first time that people start to like really think that Velma's hot and like the thing starts to sway more in like a pro Velma favor. I think this is when people start to go like, man, the gays really like Linda Cardellini, don't we? (laughs) Like a lot. Um, I think that obviously Shaggy is, this is such a perfect depiction of what Shaggy is at his best, that this is why Matthew Lillard would be Shaggy for a really long time with Casey Kasem's blessing. Cause he was also like, just, he was just getting too old to keep doing the role at this point. He didn't sound remotely like a teenager and there's only room for Frank Welker, I guess, to be an old man pretending to be a teen in that series. <laughs> and like you do something unique with Daphne and like, It's a big swing from, like, classic Scooby to this, where Daphne kind of doesn't really have a personality. She's just kind of there to get kidnapped and be pretty. But, like, the newer post-Zombie Island version of Daphne, it's like, oh, no, she's a doer. She does things. Mm -hmm. And this is, like, the most hands-on approach to her doing shit. So I, I like all of these versions of it. It builds on, or is at the very least, like, the start of a new direction for these characters. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Daphne in particular, I love that starting probably with Zombie Island, they, everyone making these things seems to understand that, like, they could do so much more with her character. And what they Mm -hmm. do with her character can be different every time. So, like, in Zombie Island, she's, like, very competent. She runs her, like, news show. In this, she's trying to prove herself. um, And it's, it's really cute. I think it makes for some great humor of her just, like, being, like, almost pathologically worried that she's being, like, undervalued, you know, to, like, She's just, like, very competitive. Um, yeah. And, and then, you know, there's, like, uh, <laughs> Be Cool Scooby-Doo, which I realized earlier when I said that the this was the most creative period. I, I'm a big Be Cool Scooby-Doo stay on, actually. So um, um, in that, it's like, oh, she has this, like, rich inner life and all these all these hobbies and, and things she's able to do that nobody knew about, you know? So um, I, I do. I agree, like you. I think it was a really good version of Daphne that kind of, like, set set the stage for her not just being the one that gets kidnapped like she says at the beginning of the movie Mm -hmm. and something that I really appreciate about that is that this is one of the few instances where we do have a character that we typically see as like 
like the sex appeal character like that's who Daphne is and she now gets to have that strength gets to have that autonomy but she also doesn't lose her sex appeal like they Mm -hmm. don't nerf her sex appeal or her femininity at all like when she has her new outfit that's like the jumpsuit like it's pants but it's pants because it's practical because she's kicking and she like that's more that's a better outfit to be wearing than in a skirt kicking. You can still do it, but like it's it's more practical for her. But it's still made of like mat- like glittery metallic material and has flared, very well tailored bottoms. Like she's still gonna wear chunky go go boots in like every scene. Of course, because oh, including you got on to. the beach. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really like that because I think too frequently when they're trying to do these like subversions, they do strip that from the character. And like, I think like Daphne is absolutely a femme. Like that is who she Mm -hmm. has always been. And so to allow her to get that strength while, you know, sometimes it's a little silly, like, you know, (laughs) he finds her soul and she's like, put me back. I can do it myself. And he's like, no, (laughs) Daphne, I'm not doing that. I think it's super cute and funny. Um, But to, allow her to be her same person without losing like the core of who she is. Like that was groundbreaking for me to see as a kid because I had a lot of weird gender feelings. I still have a lot of weird gender feelings. Um, But seeing that like very much like impacted me and still does like rewatching it. I was like, yeah, (laughs) I was really excited for her. And the fact that she's fighting a, like a luchador rules, always a fan of women fighting luchadors. (laughs) I love that this movie uses luchadors because like, there's no reason there should be a luchador in this movie. There just is. But they use it the same way that like the mystery men do where it's like this guy is the most capable and the toughest and the coolest yeah Yeah. I I wrote a note about Daphne in this movie which it's like this wasn't a realization for me at the time I don't think but I think like this is what the script was going for is like realizing that like oh she's kind of never been a bimbo like people just have have thought that of her but she's really capable and she's just like ultra femme like it's really people are Mm -hmm. confusing like femininity for stupidity and like that's their loss so Mm -hmm. uh, I I think it just comes down to her not having enough and then they associate that with like her lacking totally yeah because it's not like I don't I haven't rewatched the very original show in a long time but I don't remember it being negative towards her she's just kind of not anyone's favorite yeah she's just kind of there Mm -hmm. really like she is kind of just there like she's the way that it has always been coded is that like she's the pretty one and Velma's the smart one. And that's mm-hmm. and that's kind of how she operated within the original series where like Velma was the one who always came up with the ideas, always did everything, which is why I love this depiction of Velma, because that ch- truth has not changed. What we are now seeing is how she feels about, you know, Fred taking credit and like men taking credit for like the brilliance of women. Um, Mm -hmm. That's like kind of groundbreaking stuff to introduce to like children. Um, (laughs) uh, This movie, like the more I think about it, I'm like, there's so many like seeds of who I am as a person that I think came from this movie that I just never unpacked because, you know, that's what happens when you're an adult. You push aside the things that you enjoyed as a child and you don't think about it too deeply. And that's what we're trying to course correct on this show every single week (laughs) totally and I think to that end I also really loved that the movie just in terms of influencing me like I was like I never know how to describe this but I definitely was a kid who like I loved like I I could feel when something was pandering to me and trying to be like extremely childlike um Mm -hmm. and I 
I liked cheekier things. Like, I always liked Nickelodeon more than Disney because it was, like, they could get away with, like, a couple double entendres or whatever. Like, even when I Same. was little, I just I just was always that way. So I was, like, like, Ela Fisher's beautiful tiny shirts were very influential to me. Um, <laughs> and and just things like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, the, the idea that the overarching plot is actually that... Uh, sober well-behaved teenagers are are scary um i thought that was kind of cool that they were like we you know the problem here is that these people end up too well behaved because they should be partying college students like I, it's 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 nice it, there's there's some nice stuff in here that i i unexpectedly uh internalized as well <laughs> oh yeah like especially because and this is a topic that i love to bring up because i think it's a really important part of american history which is that the, the 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 like kind of corporate HR interaction party video that they end up showing like brainwashed teens who are inhabited by these gross bunny monsters is just like a, a mental hygiene film. It's like a social conditioning film of like the fifties and sixties. It's it's just propaganda. Yeah, totally. Or even like those quizzes you take when you have to get a job and they're like, You left work and then you saw a napkin on the floor. Do you pick it up? And then give uh, your boss all your money, or do you go home because you're off work? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> they really right on are a scale set up of like one that. to six. Would you steal a pen from work? Never. Yeah. <laughs> but no, you're totally right. It is a mental hygiene film, which is uh, like, and I think that this is the the exit of kind of the Reagan era happening in real time of well, that think of it as the throwback to where we were when scooby-doo came out to now yeah yeah definitely like the like the i think late 90s early 2000s teens have a lot in common with like 60s teens um because everything is cyclical and i think that's also we're getting back to that cycle like right about now which i think is very cool which is why everybody's panicking about gen z every other day because uh, it's different and it's like it's really not but okay yeah. <laughs> it's it's all the same it's just a different version of it um, oh yeah but like no but but for real though like I'm, I'm actually processing my own words now in real time but it's like no but teen culture like as we understand it didn't exist when scooby-doo came out like there weren't teen films there weren't like teen shows really there were like shows for the whole family they were mean, like, like saturday morning movies. cartoons yeah like you had stuff like that but this is pre-American graffiti. This is certainly like pre the 80s. It's way before like MTV's Spring Break, which is essentially what Spooky Island is going for. It's like a horror aesthetic of that. So yeah, it's kind of really weird to think about like the good old wholesome American values of when Scooby was introduced versus when this Scooby comes out. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's really, uh, there was a period where where teens were just not captured in pop culture very much, um, and it's maybe that's part of why this is so enduring is because it was one of the definitive, you know, portrait original portrayals of teens in pop culture. Mm -hmm. Definitely, and I think th this movie has a spiritual relationship with the Brady Bunch movie, which I know the Brady Bunch movie was a huge inspiration when they were originally writing the script and they did want it to make it more of like PG-13. That's what they were chasing. But th I think it needed to be PG because of 
it being Scooby-Doo um, yeah. and it being so popular with kids because the Brady Bunch, yeah, was wholesome for the whole family, but it was a family thing. Scooby-Doo was a kid's thing. So it like it needed to be PG and not PG-13. But I think that they're spiritual siblings in that way because it is taking these characters who do have somewhat the same sensibilities of the era that they come from. Cause we see that with like their fashion, they look different from everyone else. Like it, yeah. it fits in, in this world, but like they would stick out. They like, they do stick out compared to everyone else because they still have that. The, the manner of their speaking is very different, which is why when we do get Fred doing AAVE, it sounds so weird, not just because it's a white boy doing AAVE, but also because that is such an unnatural sound from like Fred's 1960s mouth Mm -hmm. that like, it sounds just so fake like he sounds like a robot and it's very funny and is a great sign of being like this is what you sound like when you do this don't do this (laughs) in a a different world where groove is in the heart was the biggest song of the 90s their outfits wouldn't be that out of place you know that's a great point (laughs) but we're 10 years removed from groove is in the heart and instead we're dealing with sugar ray (laughs) which like okay we talked about that a little bit before but i I want to know a, a genuine question here about this because, first of all, I don't want to be anywhere where like Mark McGrath shows up because he just seems like a bad time to me. But in this universe where Mark McGrath and the rest of Sugar Ray are being inhabited by monsters, that means either the monsters learned a bad Sugar Ray song that Sugar <laughs> Ray had already written to be performing it on the beach that morning, or the monsters wrote a bad sugar song. <laughs> I like to think they came up with it that morning themselves. You yes. Know, what's so funny, this is like, there's no insight in this, but it just cracked me up. I, for some reason, thought the Sugar Ray part was at the beginning when they arrived. So for most of my rewatch yesterday, I was like, did WB just release like an... Uh, like a, a Sugar Ray free cut of this movie? <laughs> Release the Sugar Ray cut? <laughs> I would have been fine with that. But like when they're attacking them like in that barn, I'm like, BJ, isn't this just the end of Zombie 2? <laughs> but with like, <laughs> with, like, with like four yeah, wheelers? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Like when they're going through the, through the, uh, he punches through the window and grabs him around it. I was like, yeah, no, that's a Fulci movie. That's what I'm looking at right now. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, well, James that, Gunn. That part's so cute. I, I've, I love when Scooby says, is Fred in a bad mood? I think that's, like, my favorite line of his. (laughs) And I really love when they make Scooby stupid. Like, I know that's, like, I know we just talked about complex characterization, but I think when Scooby's stupid, he's the funniest to me. So I agree. Because it's so sweet. It's like he's he's an innocent soul. I was going to say he's the pure soul. Like, that's such a cute little plot point. Well, so, okay, on the note of the pure soul, I do want to talk about... Yeah, we're, like, about... not even talking about the plot of this movie yet. I, well, I, wanted to talk... <laughs> I know, we're, like, an hour in. Like, ha... well, we never go beat by beat. But I want to talk about, like, the scare factor of this movie and how we view about it. Um, I find the ghost at the opening, like, the cold open, legitimately terrifying. Like, oh, that design ghost is design so cool. is so cool, but it's so scary. And during this rewatch, I was like, you know... I don't remember being scared by it because I was a weird kid, but I, that's a lot for kids. That yeah. face is scary. Yeah, the the parts that I remember scaring me as a kid, um, I I really vividly remembered when I rewatched, and it's when this is like obviously spoilers, but I feel like we're spoiling it. Anyway, oh yeah, we're um, we spoil everything. Yeah, um, when 
Mary Jane gets whacked by the branch and her face gets kind of weird. Her her CG face gets gross. Yeah, that part unsettled me. And then also when they pull off uh, Mr. Bean's mask was upsetting (laughs) to me um, because Uh it's like a weird robot face. And I think maybe because I was watching all the weird, uh, all of the much too old for me, um, like... AI and Minority Report and all those things at the time, like like the Steven Spielberg sci-fi era, I was very easily spooked by like robot-y things. So those were the parts that scared me. Yeah, I definitely don't like when uh, he has the robot face because I don't know if I've talked about it on this show, but I've talked about it online. Uh, the Terminators are the scariest mm-hmm. thing in the world to me. Like anytime like a robot has like human looking teeth, it just really itches a part of my brain that kicks in my fight or flight. Uh, So I definitely did not like that. Um, I also, depending on the lighting they're in, the bunny monsters that to me, they look just kind of like beefy versions of Randall from Monsters, Inc. Um, depending on the lighting, because that's when the CGI is better or worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're a little they're a little scary, but uh, then they get into like a, a, a lighting where it's very apparent that they are digital and then all of that fear goes away, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I think um, they're supposed to be more silly so that like kids can process them. But I think so. May- maybe it's maybe it's just my, you know, mushy 10-year-old brain from when I saw this, but I remember them looking better, but may- I think it's just how CG has accelerated. Or it's the fact that we're watching it on a really nice TV now and not like <laughs> a CRT from the late 70s in my living room. Totally. That's a- the CG is one of the, that's why I was like, I really don't get the negative reviews because my takeaway is that the CGI is the worst part, but that wouldn't have been something people said at the time because it was, no, not at all. It was good for the time, I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that it, uh, I definitely had little random images like that that scared me in anything as a kid. Like I would get scared of like a random part of Sesame Street, you know? So I don't think that it's scarier than other um, things. I think Scooby-Doo in general is one of the best ways to it's, a, it's one of the best gateways to horror for me because totally. you, you get introduced to monsters in a really safe environment, especially if you're watching the old ones where it all kind of turns out the same. So you can you can like train yourself to be around, be, you know, seeing monsters all the time while also knowing it's going to end with them unmasked. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think Scooby-Doo is very much my introduction to horror as a very small child. But speaking of like removing uh, Mr. Bean's robot mask in this, <laughs> I kind of really like... I mean, I don't necessarily like the reveal of Scrappy-Doo, which, like, that that to me, like, I never minded Scrappy. Like, he was never my favorite, but I was like, you know, he's, he's in movies I like. Oh, like, I, I hated Scrappy. Most people do. <laughs> most people do. But I was like, I don't know, he's in ghoul school. I like ghoul school, so that means I don't hate Scrappy. Um, but I like that during this era where the monsters are real, you get you're getting away from the original elements of Scooby-Doo where there's an unmasking where you're kind of like, there's a mystery but it's less about the mystery and it's a little bit more about the monsters you are getting both in this one where there is a mystery and an unmasking and you're trying to solve that but there are still monsters that are with the status quo of what scooby looks like during this era and i think they did a really good job of both those even if i don't think the reveal is great and even if scrappy Doo with his giant monster cg thing with his big dumb head and his like 1970s like professional wrestler beel belly he, he skipped leg day, and I don't like his tiny little <laughs> legs. They bother me. Yeah, he looks uh, he looks unsettling, for sure. Yeah. Like, not in a way that he's supposed to be creepy, but just like, mm-mm, your proportions are weird. I don't like it. Totally. You're like Ron DeSantis's, like, long shins, because he wears heels. <laughs> I don't like it. You're the opposite of that. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, anytime I um, write about Scooby-Doo, I quickly find out that people have completely different opinions on Scooby-Doo. Like, there's it, everyone's just of two minds about everything. So, I always thought that I didn't like Scrappy because he was annoying, but I don't know if maybe this movie influenced me because whenever I write about Scrappy and kind of say he's annoying, I always see people who are like, you're wrong. He's great. We love him. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think those people are wrong because I find Scrappy insufferable. He is absolutely the cousin Oliver, going back to the Brady Bunch, and I don't like him. <laughs> yeah, same here. I thought it was so clever. It's such a fun thing for, for parents who go see the movie or went to see the movie at the time and had watched the original shows to be like, like, you know, when it gets to the Scrappy flashback, it's just so funny and rewarding because you're like, oh, yeah, this guy sucks. And I like that. Like, people talk about, it always goes viral being like, oh, Scooby-Doo's political because, like, it's always a rich guy that did it. Um, but mm -hmm. I think it's political in other ways as well. Like, we talked about with just, like, the status quo teen versus, you know, the the sober and well-behaved teen. But also, like, uh, not not political per se, but I just like that this ends with uh, just being like, yeah, he's just a dick. Like, he just sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he feels really entitled to be in charge of things. Totally, yeah. Sometimes somebody's like a megalomaniac and they just want to... I think that's what they call him. I don't know. But um, they just uh -huh. want to be a control freak about everything and they make your life worse. <laughs> and, like, you peed on Daphne, my guy. Like, you don't get to be in charge. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. You don't get to pee on people and be in charge. That's a thing we've learned. I know. I like the implication <laughs> that that was, like, the deal breaker that they were like, he's marking his territory. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> he's the worst. And uh, I, I guess acknowledging um, the well-debunked rumor, but it, I, it's a rumor that I just wish was real is every so often it makes the rounds on like Facebook shared by the same friends of yours who will share like that Beetlejuice two poster that's been going on for five years. Oh um, <laughs> just ridiculous. But there is a longstanding rumor that Tim Curry was asked to play the role that Mr. Bean, uh, Rowan Atkinson, that's his real name, uh, was supposed to play, but he refused because he hates Scrappy do so much that has been debunked by both like Tim Curry's reps and James Gunn. But I like to live in a world where that is true um so i'm just gonna operate as if that that is true because that that fiction's better than the fact in my mind oh it would have been so much better because tim curry's the best and like once you said that to me because i've never heard that rumor i was like just listening to all of the line delivery i'm like no but i can hear this in tim curry's voice and i love it and i want him <laughs> to return to scooby-doo after witch's ghost because he's great in that yeah because <laughs> he's tim curry and he's great in everything Play, I, I could totally see him doing the line where he does like the little growl and says you wouldn't want to meet me in a in a back alley. <laughs> right. <laughs> I imagine he would be doing very much a, a character like how he does in uh, Scary Movie 2. I think that would be the specific brand of Tim Curry you would be getting for this. Yeah. I did read and I think was able to source it pretty accurately. I think it, it was not just rumors that both Mike Myers and Jim Carrey almost played Shaggy, which is like a horrible. Yes. Like, oh. We're in the best timeline, really, because that. They're, Mike Myers is weird. definitely too old. Yeah. Especially, but like, uh-uh. Yeah, that would have, no. It, like, it's one of those things where people joke all the time, like, so-and-so could play this role, but so-and-so couldn't play that role. Like, this time period in 2002, like, 
there is not another actor on the planet who could play Shaggy the way that Matthew Lillard did. Like, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Probably. And to see, too, like, how he has embraced this character and there's always the videos that will show up of him talking to little kids in the Shaggy voice at conventions. Like, I have to, like, pace around my apartment afterwards because I get so emotional about it because he understands the impact and the importance of this character in a way that I think so many of these like celebrity cast people don't always like, I am very much a staunch advocate of like voice actors and respecting voice actors. And I hate whenever they do movies like space jam, a new legacy is like Like, the big one for me or like Scoob. And like, the thing is everybody in Scoob is trying their hardest, but I'm like, but you have the people available. Why are you recasting them? And it just bothers me on like a very visceral level. But like Matthew Lillard gets it. Like, yes, he was a live action guy first, but he gets it. And that just like, it like broke my heart when he was like, yeah, I found out they were doing Scoob and I wasn't asked. And I was like, I don't want to be mad about Will Forte, but now I am mad about Will Forte because how dare you not tell Matthew Lillard? He's shaggy. (laughs) And I can't speak to that for sure because uh, everyone I interviewed was talking about like a different era of WB than it is now. But um, it definitely seems like that is a thing in Scooby where people get moved around, um, replaced and things like that. And it's, to, to my understanding and, and in my opinion only, um, seems very much like a studio interference thing and not like mm-hmm. the, the, the responsibility of any specific um, writer or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It seems like a thing where um, there's definitely some people who are in charge who are like, you know what would be cool for a Scooby? And they don't really know what, they, <laughs> what they're talking about. Um, and they just kind of kind of get people, you know, uh, booted without even really thinking about it because they're just thinking about who they want instead. So um, it's pretty, it, it is a bummer. I know um, Scott Innes, he voiced Scooby and Shaggy in, um, in some of those direct-to-video movies. And he talked about how, like, when he first found out he was not going to be in something, he was, like, crying in, in a Walmart parking lot about it. You know, like, it's, like, it's sad to think that something that's so um, beloved and feel so creative has so much uh, politics behind the scenes, you know? But, Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially once you get into like the more uh, obvious corporate crossover Scooby iterations, like the ones they did with WWE or uh, Scooby-Doo and the r- rock and roll mystery with Kiss, where mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, you're just, you're just pumping a machine behind that. And I'm going to be honest with you, I kind of love the Kiss one a lot. And there's some really hilarious <laughs> moments in the wrestling <laughs> one. When, like when John Cena jumps off of a cliff with his theme music blaring and catches a boulder with his bare hands. That's awesome. <laughs> but like, it's clearly like, hey, let's just get some names involved with this. Like, you know, who's who's this guy? We don't want this guy. We want name value to to sell our products in this in this day and age, you know? Mm-hmm. The Scooby name is apparently not good enough on its own. See, because that's the thing that gets me is it's like I... I hate it, but I understand it when it happens with other animated movies. If it's like originals and they're like, well, we need to get, you know, a big name celebrity in here to get people in the door. Like, I understand that. Why else that. would someone go see Mr. Peabody? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> I understand that. But it's Scooby fucking do. Like, his yeah. middle name, <laughs> fucking. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
People are going to see Scooby-Doo because they love Scooby-Doo. I love Zac Efron. When I saw Scoob, the last thing on my mind was, ooh, Zac Efron is Fred? No, I don't fucking care about that. I want to see a Scooby movie. Totally. (laughs) Right, you raggy? Scoob. Hey, let's run for it. We like gotta get out of here. Uh Uh-uh. Rhyme and rack rice. A sacrifice. Dude, that's not a good thing, Scoob. I'm sorry I yelled at you. And I'm really sorry I haven't been a very good friend since we got here. But listen to me, bro. You gotta trust me now. Don't trust me. I do trust you, Scoob. Now look, who's, who's your best buddy? Reggie. That's right. And who's my best buddy in the whole wide world? Ruby do. That's right, Scoob. You are. We're like two trippy peas in a far out pod, man. Uh-huh. And best buddies, they trust each other. So let's do what we do best. Let's run out of here screaming in fear like a couple of lunatics, okay? Okay. I would just say that I do feel like there are people who, uh, I don't know if it's because it's animation, because it's for kids, or just because they like associate it with the original, um, there's definitely a lot of people who are like, why why care? Like, why do you care about Scooby-Doo? Uh, but to me, it feels like when people are like, it feels like the experience of, of watching the new Halloween movie and comparing it to all the other Halloween movies, you know, or like a new Final Destination or Saw or whatever it is, Fast and Furious, where like, it's really fun to have that back catalog in your mind and to be able to reference it um, and think about how how these things stack up against each other um and it also makes a community right like all of those things are so fun to talk about with people because you can just and you can spend hours ranking them so um i think that scooby uh gets a bad rap sometimes just in terms of like why you know why would this be your your interest when there's so much else Mm -hmm. out there um and one because it's super fun and it's there's a lot of things that are great about it but also it doesn't really need to prove itself like it can just be it can just be a fun thing that we all like to watch and talk about you know yeah for sure i i I think that um for me like my 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 favorite horror franchise and it's certainly not the best but it's my favorite is tremors six of those movies went direct to video (laughs) and i think that there's still the stigma of what direct to video means for people combined with like it being for kids and therefore being deemed as lesser that makes people not recognize Scooby-Doo as an American institution. I would argue almost on the level of like a Mickey mouse at this point. Mm -hmm. No, I would, I would agree with you completely. And you know, Scooby and the gang are like quite frankly, like the first like teen friend group that like really permeated pop culture and continue to do so even today. Like we're getting constant reboots and reimaginings. And, you know, I think that there's something really special about that because, you know, I'm not trying to like get on my Barbie soapbox again, but it's another example of like an American institution that like so much of, you know, what we were doing storytelling wise, how we feel about society. Like you can see these things reflected in the way that these characters evolve and like yeah sure say what anybody wants to say about Velma like good or bad there is power in being able to subvert this classic character to have them be sexual to have them be swearing like because that shows that that's how 
we're evolving where we're having more frank discussions about sex we're having more frank discussions about you know any of these things and realizing that if you say a swear like it's not the end of the fucking world um i think that that's really cool and to be able to use scooby as kind of a barometer for that is really nice and it's it's comfort you know because Scooby's kind of always there. He's always been there and it feels like Scooby and the gang are going to be characters that will always be there because they will always be reflections of how we are changing. And, you know, I I don't know. I just love the 2002 movie so very much. And I love what it had to say about 2002 teens. I love what it had to say about Scooby. I love you know, that it continues to have legs even today and that people kind of view it uh, as kind of this, you know, sacred artifact in the world of Scooby at this point. I, they really they really nailed it for, for as much as people want to crave, you know, the things that it could have been but wasn't. I'm really pleased with what we did get. Yeah, and I think that going to what you said about comfort, I was trying to figure out why I was drawn to it in so this this version specifically, I guess, um, as a kid, and I think part of it is because so many of the movies y'all talk about on here have such a rigid view of um, teen life with like you know cliques essentially like jocks, preps, burnouts, whatever. And when mm-hmm. you're a younger kid and you're like me, where you like when you're younger, you just love watching stuff about teens. Um, it's kind of daunting to think about all that and think about, like, what am I going to be? Where am I going to fit in? And I think what I like about uh, especially this version of Scooby-Doo, but all of them really, is that it's just kind of a group of people who you have no idea how they would have been friends, but they are, and it doesn't really matter. And it's, there's, you know, there's not, um, like, everyone has their, their things they bring to the table, um, and then their differences are, like, why you love them, you know? So it it's a kind of idealistic vision of teen life um, compared to other things where it's like everyone is, you know, none of these people would ever be in the same room. And that's beautiful. And I think that is the perfect note to go out on. So Harmony, Scooby-Doo is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? It's a yes. I Is this a perfect movie in terms of like some aspects? Like, no, I wish that like, I wish that someone would George Lucas this where it's like, what if we just go in and remaster the CG of our own movie? Like, make it look a little bit better. I would not be opposed to that for this movie. But like for what we got, like the cast is great. I think it holds true to its source material. I think it's so much better than a lot of people realize. And it's just fun. It's just fun. Like it's 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 just good Scooby-Doo. That's it. It's good Scooby Doo. It's good Scooby Doo. I would take <laughs> I would take it to the prom and then do what I did after my prom, which is go get a bunch of Ben and Jerry's and watch TV with it. Perfect. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I can't say what I did after my prom online. I think I, I have before. Didn't go. <laughs> uh, well, Valerie, thank you so much for joining us and you know getting to flex your Scooby Scholar muscles. Where can people find your work? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I would say my favorite way to communicate with people in this internet hellscape right now is my Substack, which is, um, it's, if you search my full name on Substack, it'll come up, but it's called, Hey, What Are You Watching? I do a weekly newsletter. Um, I also can be found on social media, unfortunately. Um, on my, anywhere you look, I will be under A and E and Val. 
And also I write for Slash Film and IGN and all those things. But you'll find those through the other outlets, through the other things if you follow me. Yeah, you should definitely subscribe to Valerie Substack. It is a fantastic newsletter, and we will be linking to it in the show notes for easy accessibility. As always, you can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour, and at Blue Sky at my name, Harmony Colangelo. And thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what band do you want people to check out this week inspired by live action Scooby-Doo? Man, like, I don't know if there's been a better week for me to go ahead and do a ska band, but we're doing a ska band this week. But the band we're shouting out this week is Bad Operation. They are a ska band from uh, Louisiana. They're great. They are maybe one of the best ska bands of the last 20 years. They have a self-titled album from a few years ago that is so unbelievably good and also has like some low-key vibes, like political vibes. Also, just the whole thing is generally spooky. Um, We got to see them at a big old ska show that also featured uh, shout-out alums of Half Past Two, Susie True, and We Are The Union. And they were fronted by um, the singer of Cat Bite for that show, so it was Cat Bopperation. (laughs) And it was super duper fun. Uh, Maybe it's just that I was like dehydrated and old and tired. But I think this is where the show peaked for me because I still had the energy to really like go hard. Uh, If you're interested, they do have a split EP that came out fairly recently where they do three songs on it. And they're killer. I especially like the song What Keeps Us Moving. Uh, So, yeah, give give Bad Operation your love. They're the best. Fantastic. All right, friends, we will see you next week for the end of spooky season. Save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. Bye. He's a man on a mask. Scooby. Dude, what are you doing, man? Step off, Scoob. Reggie! We're all ripped. I'm whipped? Oh, yeah? Well, why don't you say that to my face, man? We'll read right now. We're on our back room. No, Scooby-Doo, your mom eats cat poop. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.